All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of AM Live. Thank you for joining us on this Saturday. It's great to have you here. And uh, a lot to discuss as we are speaking. Putin and Biden just had a phone call. And the word from the Biden administration is that nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. So we remain uh, embroiled in this very dangerous crisis between the world's top two nuclear powers. And to discuss it today, I'm very thrilled to be joined by Branko Marcetic. He is a writer with Jacobin and the author of the book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. And what a prescient case that is, because uh, I think Biden has hurled the world into a really unnecessary and dangerous crisis right now when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. So I'm very happy that Branko is here to discuss it with us. And he's been on a tear recently at Jacobin with a series of articles writing about the Ukraine crisis. Um, and we're going to discuss many of the other things that he has written. The one I especially want to rec- recommend before I bring Branko in is on the background to the current coup, to the current crisis in Ukraine. Because the standard line we get is that basically in 2014, there was a pro-democratic revolution. And, and in response to that, Putin, because he's afraid of democracy in Ukraine, launched this war against the uh, pro-democracy government, stole Crimea. But Branko gets into the actual real background, which is that essentially, take, to take a broad perspective, both the U.S. and you could say Russia, too, have used Ukraine as sort of a... Um, a pawn in a geopolitical struggle and a refusal to let Ukraine be neutral to not choose one side or the other has led us to the crisis that we are in today. And Branko's story goes into a lot of that detail, which we'll, which we will discuss. So Branko, let me bring you in and say hello. Hi, how's it going? Good. I'm good. How are you? Thank you for taking the time today. Uh, no, not at all. I'm, I'm glad that this is this is probably the most successful call-in uh, that I've had so far. <laughs> Usually it's set with all sorts of problems, so I'm, I'm quite shocked I managed to get on here. Well, hey, we're all learning, and uh, we're all here, and uh, it's uh, it's great to have the chance to uh, to speak to you. So I just want I'm curious to get your thoughts on just what's been happening in the last 24 hours. So much news happens constantly. Yesterday there was this mini freakout because PBS reported that the U.S. is now believes that Russia has decided to invade. The White House quickly tamped that down, but they're still sowing the alarm. They've asked U.S. citizens to leave Ukraine. They're warning that an invasion could happen at any moment. Uh, Now there are reports the U.S. is pulling out its troops from Ukraine because they fear a Russian invasion. And, of course, today we just had this call between Biden and Putin. Where where do you uh, see things at right now? I mean, it really is difficult to, to say anything firm because you're dealing with, one, two very uh, uh, dishonest and untrustworthy governments in, in, in the form of Moscow and Washington, uh, both of which, you know, could be uh, telling the truth or at least partial truth, could be, uh, you know, basing some of the conclusions on actual evidence or could simply be sort of, uh, putting out misinformation that would serve uh, their particular interests at the time. So it's hard to know because, as you mentioned, the U.S. has said 
uh, an invasion maybe coming, uh, you know, this weekend or next week. Then they've also kind of walked that back. But then uh, apparently Biden has told NATO allies that, no, this is actually real. Uh, Russia, of course, denies it. Um, you know, my thinking is that uh, I, I think what's going on is a is a very very high stakes poker game. I think that uh, that, that Putin is basically trying to uh, force the United States and the West to the negotiating table, um, and and he's doing it in 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 this way that I think he's decided, looking at how Russian concerns about NATO about NATO expansion have been just seriously rebuffed and ignored over the years. I think he's decided this is the only way that he can do it. And I also believe that, you know, if if the U.S. continues to basically um, be as inflexible as it is and, and, and refuse to, to take those concerns seriously, I do think that, that Putin would invade uh, if, if he felt that that was, the, that was the last resort. And we should be clear, that's an outrageous violation of, of international law and, and and any basic norms of a, of a you know a, a secure peaceful world big countries should not uh be invading small ones whatever whatever the case that is just nakedly outrageous and we would say the same thing if, if the u.s did that to a to a neighbor however we can't ignore the fact that that the united states refusal to to countenance any any limit to nato's eastward expansion and to take these concerns, long-standing concerns that Russia's had seriously, doesn't play a role. It plays a major role, and it's it's disappointing that, and 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 frankly, quite scary that it's now reaching a point where where you know war is looking increasingly likely. Although I'm, I'm not going to say it's imminent. I don't know what what exactly the timeline here is. Yeah, I guess my question is, what is the U.S. aiming for when it comes to NATO expansion? They even quietly admit. Or even sometimes very vocally too, Biden has said this, that Ukraine is not going to join NATO anyway. So it's like they're resisting a compromise on an outcome that they ultimately admit is a fait accompli anyway, right? That Ukraine is not going to be joining NATO anytime soon. So it's just, it makes the, it makes the, the, uh, just the rejection of diplomacy that much more puzzling. And I, you know, I start to think about, okay, well, if, if they're uh, hyping the threat of a Russian invasion, which I think they are, because not that I think Vladimir Putin has any moral qualms with invading Ukraine if he wanted to, but I just don't think strategically how it could benefit him. And if he wanted to invade Ukraine, why hasn't he done it for the last eight years during this uh, war? He hasn't even used his air force once, even though you know the fighting is right next door. So if, if Russia is not going to invade, although, uh, of course, it's possible that they might then what is the U.S. trying to do? And my mind goes to, are they trying to provoke possibly a Russian invasion? Do they want Russia to invade? Or are they trying to provoke something that could maybe justify these sanctions that everybody in, in Congress on both sides of the aisle keeps clamoring for? I mean, basically, there's been this effort to draft what Robert Menendez calls the mother of all sanctions that would you know, basically uh, destroy Russia's or try to destroy Russia's economy, cut it off from the global financial system. And is that the aim here to try to manufacture something that could justify that? I'm, I'm wondering if you've if you've delved into that kind of speculation as to what the real U.S. agenda is is here. Yeah, I, I I'm thinking about this all the time because uh, it, it really is kind of puzzling on the one hand, but it, it also 
when you look at it, there's several different explanations, and, and probably all of them are, are playing some sort of role. You know, I, I think one, uh, obviously, the uh, domestic difficulties Biden is having, um, his, his domestic agenda is stalled. He's an incredibly unpopular president suddenly, uh, which is, by the way, I'll just <laughs> add completely his fault. Uh, you know, he, he, he basically sabotages his own presidency. But OK, his domestic agenda is stalled. The midterms are coming up. The Democrats look like they're going to be absolutely uh, walloped in those midterms. He's being attacked widely as, as weak. Um, he he said that uh, 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 line in the press conference not too long ago, basically saying that the U.S. would tolerate a, a limited incursion by Russia, and he was uh, widely attacked for that. So I think he, on the one hand, wants to uh, project himself as strong, as, as, as basically not appeasing Putin, uh, as someone who is willing to, uh, I guess, stand up to, to uh, a, an adversary's kind of bullying behavior uh, to shore up his position. So that's one thing. I think um, there is a real mindset among U.S. officials and, and military people that, uh, you know, that anything short of kind of a forceful response and, 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 and having troops to, to basically uh, uh, face down uh, Putin right now is, is appeasement. And, and that, you know, if, if the U.S. does not appear strong and resolute uh, in this crisis, that not only will it encourage more um, uh, Russian aggression in the future, but it will encourage more aggression again uh, from China. Uh, because they'll they'll look over here and they'll say, well, look, the United States doesn't actually have the resolve to, to to stand up to a military power. So actually, we can do whatever we want. Now, I'm just saying this is the mindset of the of the people in power. I really do believe that that is part of it. And I think you're right. The other part of this is I I, I suspect that there's at least in some parts of the political military establishment of, of the United States, there's a desire to um, draw Russia into uh, kind of its second Afghanistan um, to to get Russia to, to do this invasion of Ukraine, which would be absolutely horrific for Ukrainians, but it would not be very good for Russia either, not just because of the sanctions, but, you know, I mean, if it ends up in a protracted war over there, um, it's it's not going to be pretty, and it, and it could very much uh, destabilize Russia internally. Uh, it could prove a, a very unpopular thing. I mean, it, it, you know, a, a invasion of Ukraine is not going to be like the the uh, annexation of, of Crimea. Uh, it, it would probably be be pretty bloody, and, and could end up being pretty uh, pretty protracted, depending on. Remember that that Ukraine has a lot of um, very committed um, uh, <laughs> extremist militants who, uh, regardless of, of, of whether they would be able to stand up to, to Russia in, a, in an actual full-on war, could do in Ukraine what, um, you know, what we've seen extremists do in, in, um, in, in Iraq and in, in countries like, uh, uh, like those that the United States has destabilized, where they've sort of kept this insurgency going. And we know that, that uh, since 2015, the United States has been training uh, Russian soldiers and and, and, and everything for, for a uh, basically an anti-Russian insurgency. It's a secret program that we Ukrainian like soldiers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. To to fight uh, Russia. So you know, I think that is another part of it. But but that is such a uh, if if that is really what the main goal here is, that is an incredibly reckless uh, idea. I mean, to have a <laughs> you know something akin to an Iraq just off Europe's doorstep uh, in a in a c- 
country that is already uh, full of, of, of far-right paramilitaries and where, where the far-right paramilitaries have actually threatened the government uh, with violence and, and threatened coups repeatedly, that is a really dangerous thing. And it's not something that, that we should hope for no matter what you know, the most vehement anti-Russian hawks kind of imagine this could, uh, this could do uh, negatively to Russia. So, yeah, that, that would not be a very good uh, state of affairs. Well, if the Biden administration's plan is to try to draw Russia into fighting a far-right insurgency, they have a lot of experience in it. And um, I, you know, for people who follow me closely, I'm sorry to keep repeating myself because I, I quote this email, I think, every time I speak publicly now. But today, actually, is the 10th anniversary of Jacob Sullivan, who's now the National Security Advisor, writing to Hillary Clinton an email. Ten years ago today, February 12, 2012. And he wrote to Hillary, and he just wrote, See last item, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. And that's how I feel right now about the U.S. strategy in, in Ukraine is the, this alliance with a Ukrainian military that it's not, you know, I mean, it's, it's too simplistic to say it's dominated by neo-Nazis and fascists, but there is a heavy far-right element inside the Ukrainian armed forces. And on that front, I want to ask you about some of what you get into in your Jacobin article that I mentioned, which I just goes into so much of the history of the 2014 Maidan coup. And I'm wondering if you talk about the role of the far right, both um, in, in the, the coup, although you know people, people who support it will call it a, a, a revolution, so I don't want to be pejorative. I call it a coup, but others call it a revolution. Um, in the coup, and, and in Ukraine since, how actually this conflict that the U.S. has stoked inside Ukraine with Russia has only enabled Ukraine's far right. So uh, the, the Maidan protests were driven, first of all, sparked by the rejection of a, a, a free trade deal with the EU um, and a really punitive IMF loan uh, in, in favor of a much uh, better uh, Russian deal. Um, but they were also driven by long-standing concerns and anger about corruption, authoritarianism, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's how they began. They were inflamed by um, the uh, Ukrainian government's uh, very heavy-handed response. Uh, they just tried to crack down on them, basically, and, and remove them. Uh, that actually kind of got more people involved um, because they they uh, suddenly, you know, the, the standing up to the government's kind of repression of, of protests became the, the main rallying cry uh, of the protests. At the same time, uh, the Ukrainian far right looks at this uh, and they go, okay, well, we can we can use this uh, this uprising, this this uh, this protest movement to to uh, push our own goals, which is, of course, you know, they would love to be able to take power, they would love to be able to stabilize the the Ukrainian government uh, that was there at the time, and so basically, you see uh, not just in Kiev but but around Ukraine. Uh, there's a, a really great study that was done by by Vladimir Ishenko. He's a Ukrainian sociologist. He looked at reports of uh, the Maidan uh, protests all over the country, and he found that that far right, the far right uh, groups and, and, and parties tended to be, um, you know, at the, at the leading edge of a lot of these protests. Uh, it doesn't mean that they were the entirety at all. You know, they, they were still a small minority within the protests. However, they were taking a, a leading role. Um, and, and, and they were taking a particularly leading role in the most violent protests. And as time goes on, the far right uh, basically becomes kind of a revolutionary vanguard. 
for this protest movement where they kind of start to lead it. They're the ones with the weapons. They start standing up to the police uh, and they get increasingly aggressive. Um, there is uh, this this murky incident that kind of precipitated the the, the fall of the uh, Ukrainian government, uh, where snipers were were shooting at protesters. Um, that was kind of the last straw, and that really really led to to, to uh, uh, Yanukovych uh, fleeing uh, Kiev. Um, it since then. Uh, first of all, there was there was evidence at the time that that at least some of the shooting was coming from. The, the protesters themselves, or at least the far-right elements of the protesters. Uh, there was a, a uh, actually an investigation done by, by a, uh, another uh, academic uh, whose name I'm, I'm suddenly forgetting. He, he's at the University of Ottawa, uh, uh, Ivan uh, Kachanovsky. He looked at the evidence that came out in the trials um, around the, the sniper shooting, and he determined that uh, there was actually substantial evidence that, that the, the sniper shooting did come from uh, uh, members of the protesters themselves, and most likely the, the far right members, who were seen um, by some at the time. Uh, uh, you know, going into to protest the controlled sites and, and and you know having having rifles, pointing rifles out the windows. Okay, the Ukrainian government collapses, uh, or at least the Ukrainian government first signs a deal that is agreed to by by the opposition. It's brokered by the by, by Europe. And uh, the far right kind of rallies the protesters and these ultranationalists say, no, this is not good enough. We will not accept Yanukovych staying in power if this deal is, is not ripped up. And if, and if Yanukovych is not gone by tomorrow morning, we are going to storm uh, the government uh, and, and do an armed takeover, essentially. Um, there's a bunch of guns in, in the country's west go missing. Police uh, uh, stations are raided and the, the armories are taken. There's rumors that these weapons are going to go to Ukraine, uh, go, go to Kiev, uh, and, and there's going to be all manner of bloodshed. The, the security forces, you know, basically abandon uh, the government. Yanukovych flees. Uh, what you have is a, uh, in, in the wake of that, is a pro-Western government uh, that has uh, certain members of the far right in, in key positions. And since then, um, even even though the far right's influence in, in politics, at least on, on a sort of institutional level, has, has uh, gone down, they, they haven't done well in elections. Uh, you know, the, some of these posts were uh, that the far right held were, were, have been, you know, they, they lost those posts. Um, despite this, the far right remains active. They continue to threaten violence uh, towards the government, particularly whenever the government has tried to implement the Minsk Accords. Um, it's it's led to, to you know, outright murder uh, by far-right paramilitaries. And they've been able to basically shift uh, the Ukrainian politics, uh, the, the, the sort of political center, uh, into their ultra-nationalist direction. So even centrist politicians who aren't necessarily or didn't start out as ultra-nationalists now kind of start to take some of the lines of these ultra-nationalists. Um, so that's kind of a, you know, a, 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 a long but brief history um, of, of how the far right has kind of uh, uh, played a role. And, and as you mentioned, the Azov Regiment, you know, that's probably the most significant uh, thing. They were incorporated into the National Guard, uh, you know, a law enforcement unit, um, which means if, if there's ever a far right kind of uprising, um, it's difficult to, uh, to, to, for the Ukrainian government to defend against it, because if they send a national guard, when well, that national guard has a, a far right paramilitary within its ranks, it's not exactly going to be uh, too 
uh, excited or enthusiastic uh, to, to, to stop any sort of far-right uprising. Um, so it's a really, really complicated and, and dangerous situation going on there. It's such a mess. So before we take some calls, let me ask you about uh, another article that you've written recently about just the role of progressives in all this, um, who have stayed pretty muted for at least the first weeks of this crisis since it ramped up in December. But then finally you had a statement from Pramila Jayapal and Barbara Lee on behalf of the Progressive Caucus, or, or at least signing their names as the co-chairs of the Progressive Caucus, but only their signatures, not the rest of the caucus, which I thought was interesting. But then basically speaking out against sending uh, weapons to Ukraine, which I thought was positive. Uh, and Bernie Sanders recently came out with an op-ed in The Guardian, and AOC has spoken up a little bit too. But, um, I mean, look, I, I have my own thoughts on this, but I'll let you uh, weigh in first. Um, what do you make of, of how progressives in Congress have responded to, to all this? I mean, it's, it's been pretty disappointing. Um, they were very much absent for a long time. Uh, didn't want to touch it. Um, it, it. Of late, as you mentioned, there's been more and more statements. I mean, I think that the op-ed that, that Sanders did for The Guardian was uh, really good. I, I think just uh, – I, I was actually shocked at how good it was. I thought it, he was going to take a more conservative line than he did. But he, he said that, you know, look, obviously Putin – deserves the most blame for, for whatever's going to happen. He's the one who's choosing to invade if he does invade. However, uh, let's not kid ourselves that, that you know that Russia doesn't have legitimate concerns about NATO, just as, as the United States would have concerns about Mexico or another Latin American country joining a military alliance, uh, you know, led by China or Russia. Um, and, uh, and I thought that was a, 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 you know, he didn't call outright for limiting NATO's expansion, as, say, Josh Hawley did. Um, but he sort of came right up to it, and that was sort of the implication of, of the, the op-ed. So it's good that, that it seems like the political space is opening up a little bit for people on the progressive side of things in Congress to, to start speaking out about this stuff. But, yeah, I mean, for a long time, there was, there was really nothing going on uh, from that side. And, and it, it's quite dispiriting to me that really the, the two most – Ardent and and I would say in this case sensible voices on this particular uh, issue, are Josh Hawley and Tucker Carlson. Um, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I, if people, if you want to look up what I think of Tucker Carlson, you can easily look up things I've, I've written about him. But uh, it, it's he he. It, I'm sorry, it is true that he has the most sensible position on this. And the thing that's actually really worrying about that is a not just that that I think uh, Carlson is going to to build a, a, a bigger audience because he happens to be the only sensible person on this, on this particular issue. And it will yep. lead some people who, you know, maybe don't have super coherent politics um, to, to say, okay, maybe this is a guy I can trust. But more importantly, both Hawley and, and, and Carlson and other right-wing commentators who have uh, weighed in on this to, to take a, a line that, that I think is the correct one on this, on this issue. Uh, what they want is that they don't want to, to, to stop war. They want the uh, U.S. military resources to to not be diverted to Europe because they want a war with China. They want conflict with China. Right. And so this is just a, an issue that's way too important to leave to, you know, anti-China uh, right-wing hawks. Uh, and that's why I wish the progressives uh, were saying much more. But, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I think part of the reason why they're not is because that just the insane uh, – discourse in in the united states ever since 2016 where it is just now routine 
and almost customary on the liberal side to accuse anyone of, of making any sort of anti-war argument uh, that could be construed as somehow playing into Russian interests as, you know, being on the side of Russia, parroting Kremlin talking points, yep. doing Putin's bidding, all this stuff. And uh, who on the progressive side would want a news cycle like that, you know? Yep. Yep. There's a great quote today from Jay Johnson, who is uh, Obama's Department of Homeland Security Secretary in the New York Times. And he says he was talking about, you know, the Biden administration's campaign over Ukraine. And he Jay Johnson says this is payback for 2016, (laughs) which I thought was just such a perfect quote because it's exactly what, you know, us Russiagate critics have been warning about since 2016, that all of this was fueling a very and incentivizing a very dangerous standoff with Russia where to appear progressive liberal you prove that by being a hawk on Russia and I totally agree with you about how progressives are ceding ground to the right it's kind of like in 2016 when Trump pretended that he was against foreign interventions on the campaign trail he you know he sounded like a much much less of a hawk in in key ways than Hillary Clinton when he was criticizing interventions in Libya and Syria, which was a complete scam. But because Hillary was such a hawk, a neocon, basically, she gave up that ground. And I think that helped uh, lead to her defeat. Um, I will disagree with you slightly on the Bernie op-ed. I mean, I, I was happy to see it overall because I agree. It's great that he raised the perspective of Russia when it comes to not wanting a hostile military alliance on its borders. But my problem with the op-ed and I know it must have been written by Matt Duss, who was Bernie's foreign policy advisor, or at least was heavily – was written with his heavy involvement, is that I thought it ceded – it still ceded too much ground to the neocon agenda that Bernie is purportedly challenging. He said that we should be clear who is most responsible for this looming crisis, Vladimir Putin, having already seized parts of Ukraine in 2014 – the Russian president now threatens to take over the entire country and destroy Ukrainian democracy. And I just, you know, I, I, there's a lot to pick apart in that sentence. First of all, he omits completely the role of the of the Obama administration in, I mean, it wasn't totally singularly responsible for the Maidan coup, but it played a very key role. As you write about, you know, John McCain, Chris Murphy flew over there, met with far-right leaders, egged on the protests. The U.S. funding heavily went to the forces that were behind the protests. And then you had that leaked phone call of Victoria Nuland, you know, this top State Department official under Obama and now Biden, plotting with the U.S. ambassador to choose the next Ukrainian prime minister. And, you know, Bernie could have mentioned that somehow. It's it, it's not controversial anymore. It's it's not disputed. It's just a fact that the U.S. played a, a major role in that crisis. But he leaves it out. And I, to me, that's that to me is an outgrowth of Russiagate where it's just, if you challenge anything that's in the sort of neocon Russiagate narrative, you're deemed to be someone who's repeating Russian talking points and being soft on Putin. And I just think Bernie has won the right, more than won the right, to not have to worry about that stuff or he can withstand that. I mean, they even tried to use Russiagate against him in 2020 when they, during the primary, they came out with that leak saying that Vladimir Putin is intervening to support Bernie. So Bernie's been through it he knows what the political utility is and to me it's like another example of him propping up a narrative that is fundamentally used not just to keep his political opponents in power the neoliberal centrist but it's been used against him to destroy him and i just i wish he would make more i I wish he would make a clean break from it and stand up to it instead of still trying to triangulate and cater to it 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a fair criticism of that. I mean, I, I think also, you know, talking about defending uh, Ukraine's democracy. I mean, Ukraine doesn't really have a democracy. Right? What, what exists in, in the right. Ukrainian uh, in, in Ukraine is not a democratic government. It's it's a sort of quasi democratic government, but it's a, it's really an oligarchy and it's pretty authoritarian. Uh, including yeah. the current president, who, who uses the power of the presidency to go after his, uh, his political opponents and, and other things. Um, what I would res- how I would respond to that is is that uh, yes, fair criticism. However, you know you have to look at the the op-ed as a whole, look at the the full context there. Yes, he he begins by basically saying this is all Putin's fault, but then the bulk of the op-ed is is him saying explaining how it's actually not all Putin's fault. Uh, he he you know. Because we are living in this particular political climate right now, I think he has to be very careful, as as anyone does, has to be very careful uh, with how he how he frames this issue. And so, you know, I think a, a prominent politician, let alone a progressive one, going out there and saying, "Hey, Russia, as bad as Putin is, has some actual legitimate and understandable security concerns um, uh, that we should take into account." That is a, a, a in this climate a very inflammatory. Uh, kind of uh, thing to say, or, or at least uh, maybe not inflammatory, but it's a very uh, risky thing to say. Um, no matter what you, you think about Sanders' position uh, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, it carries with it a lot of um, potential baggage. And so I think that's that's where that framing comes from. It's an, it's an attempt to kind of thread a needle uh, to, so that he doesn't get attacked as a, you know, whatever, an appeaser or doing Putin's bidding or yada, 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 all that, all that kind of stuff. But, I, you know, I think it's a fair criticism. Um, I just think that I, I'm not as bothered by it, I guess. You know what? I used to share that perspective. Like during Russiagate, I got why Bernie wasn't a Russiagate skeptic, because if he did speak out and said, this is all bullshit, they would have used that against him to destroy him. But now in retrospect, I actually have a different view. I think if you, if something is a scam and if it's serving so many dangerous ends and it's actually being used to keep to keep Bernie from, from taking over the Democratic Party, which really is to me a large part of what Russiagate was. Democrats use it as an excuse for losing to this clown in 2016 and needed something that they could cling to that could make it all Russia's fault and not the fault of their own legacy. I just think, you know, I I don't know. Now, all that said, I've never worked in Washington. I know it's a different world. People are under all kinds of crazy pressures. And yes, if you do dissent, then you then you are inviting a whole series of, 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 of attacks on you and very heavy baggage, as you say. I guess what it is, I'm nostalgic for someone like Dennis Kucinich, who I don't think was constrained by such considerations. And I hope you know, that one day such a politician, at least one, <laughs> is possible in Washington again. <laughs> because otherwise, it's just going to be constant pandering and catering. And when you do that, you, you end up propping up the, the narratives that you're ultimately trying to trying to undermine you know but anyway but but i but again it's not a world that i've ever been in and so i get that there are different considerations and one thing i wanted to say i i write about this today in my new article on Substack that i just put out where when it comes to zelensky and his his authoritarianism there's a really interesting anecdote that recently came out in time magazine that i write about in my newest article and, and i'll link to both we're basically so zelensky uh in 2021 he shut down the three television channels of the main linked to the main opposition party in Ukraine, which also which is a pro-Russian party. At that point, they had the they had the most seats in parliament, and um, at the time, the U.S. embassy cheered that move, said it was great that Zelensky was cracking down on disinformation, which is an odd 
reaction if the U.S. is purportedly concerned with democracy in Ukraine to celebrate them shutting down opposition television stations. But now it turns out that it's actually even worse than just the U.S. applauding the move. According to a top aide to Zelensky, his first national security advisor, uh, the shutting down of the television stations was, and I'm quoting Time magazine here, quote, conceived as a welcome gift to the Biden administration. And this advisor goes on that this shutting down of the television stations was, quote, calculated to fit with the U.S. agenda. So this wasn't just, you know, Zelensky shutting down the opposition's TV networks and the U.S. applauding. This was actually done to please the Biden administration. And then Time magazine, you know, the, the, the writer Simon Schuster, who's been covering Russia and Ukraine for many years, goes on to point out that it was only a few weeks later that uh, Russia announced the deployment of 3,000 paratroopers to the borders with Ukraine. That was the first in the military buildup that eventually grew to more than 100,000 troops of, you know, on Ukraine's border. So I just found that a fascinating uh, anecdote that I didn't know in terms of the background to this current standoff of these troops on the border, that it was, precip- it was precipitated by a Ukrainian crackdown that was conceived as a welcome gift to Biden. And I, it's another um, area in which just using Ukraine as a tool as cannon fodder against Russia has been a disaster for Ukraine. And one more anecdote that comes out from this Time article is that uh, the head of this opposition party, this, Ru- this pro-Russian oligarch named Medvedchuk, if I'm pronouncing that right, that he actually went to Russia in 2020 and met with Putin in one of Putin's first in-person meetings since COVID began. And he brokered an agreement to secure the Sputnik vaccine, COVID vaccine, for Ukraine. And so Medvedchuk came back to Ukraine and offered this to Zelensky. And Time magazine says that not only Zelensky, but the State Department also turned this down, which I thought was such an odd line. Like, why is the State Department helping decide whether or not Ukraine receives vaccines? And um, the consequences were uh, what uh, Time magazine describes as, as this. They say, um, they say that after Russia's vaccines were rejected, quote, the death toll mounted in Ukraine and no vaccine shipments arrived from the West. At that point, Zelensky's uh, supporters turned away from him. His approval ratings fell below 40 percent. And even uh, after that, Med- Medvedchuk's party was in the lead in some polls. And that then led to the, 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 the series of events in which Zelensky you know, took their television stations off the air. So it's just like... It just speaks to just what a negative influence the U.S. has in its client states. Here it blocks COVID vaccines from Ukraine's neighbor. You know, and why is Washington having a say in that? And uh, and then it hurt Zelensky's poll numbers, which then led him to crack down on his opposition, and that helped fuel the situation that we're in today. It's just it's just a fascinating window into the consequences of of U.S. meddling. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't know about that uh, that that aspect that's, that the, the the shutting down the stations was sort of a, meant to be a gift to Biden. Uh, so yeah, that's that's something I've just learned. I mean, uh, it's it, this is what frustrates me about the entire uh, discourse, the political discourse in the United States on Ukraine, which is that we have to talk about these kind of. Uh, fantasies we have to do is kabuki theater uh instead of talking about what's actually going on so you know it's a 
the 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 bad thing about Russia is is because it's it's meddling in Ukraine and its neighbors, uh, you know, within its neighbors' territory and kind of trying to squeeze it and all this other kind of stuff. But the U.S. is doing that to Ukraine. Um, you know, this is meant to be a, a battle of democracy versus autocracy, but but Ukraine itself. You know, the, the president is acting like an autocrat. He's, he's very authoritarian. Uh, this is all meant to be about, you know, the, the, the West's profound and the United States' profound uh, belief in territorial sovereignty and national uh, borders and, and, and international norms and all that kind of thing. And yet the U.S. right now is stealing a foreign government's uh, foreign reserves and basically uh, uh, taking it, uh, taking half of it for itself. Meanwhile, it's recognizing, you know, a, a, a Moroccan annexation of West Sahara. It's um, it, it, it invaded Iraq, of course. It's it's causing a humanitarian crisis, not just Afghanistan, but several different countries. So obviously, that's not the issue. So you know, I, I just wish that instead of talking about these 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 kind of fantasy issues, uh, that that we really just boiled it down to the 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 real thing that's going on, which is the United States does not want a Ukraine that is friendly to Russia. Russia does not want a Ukraine friendly to the West. Both countries are basically trying to keep the, the to, to, to keep the country on their side and they're doing whatever they can to do it. And I think, you know, as as ugly as that is, uh, at least if the discussion was about that, at least if the discussion was openly about, okay, what is the United States doing to contain Russia? Then we can actually have a debate about whether that's you know, a smart policy, uh, whether the, what the United States is doing right now is, is even the way to go about it and so on and so forth. But no, it's, it's, it's this whole discussion about democracy and international norms and so on and so forth, which is just meant to be for public consumption. But no one that is actually in any position of power really believes it. It's very frustrating. All right. I'm going to take calls very soon, but I have one more question. It's about your book, Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden. I'm wondering over the course of your research about Biden, what you gathered about the role of Ukraine in his political career, his recent political career. He was very involved in, in the Maidan coup back in 2014. And then his son, Hunter, of course, gets the Burisma board seat, something like fifty dollars or $80,000 per month. I'm wondering if you have a sense of you know, what, what has gotten Biden so involved in Ukraine and, and, and your thoughts on, on the fact that it's played such a, a heavy role in his presidency up to this point. Yeah, well, let me let me begin by, by first of all saying that as with so much of the current world, uh, Biden is basically trying to deal with a mess that he himself created because back in the 90s, he was one of the, the three senators who was spearheading the uh, the expansion of NATO. Um, that that people at the time, including George Kennan, the the you know the sort of godfather of containment, said was a bad idea. That was Biden. So now you know we we are living with the consequences of that, and Biden is living with the consequences of that. Uh, in terms of Ukraine specifically, Biden was basically uh, Obama's kind of foreign policy guy. That that was basically the, the the sort of you might say power sharing agreement or i guess the sort of like a delegation uh strategy that obama took that you know biden because he was this guy who had decades of foreign policy experience you know he was the chair of the senate uh foreign relations committee and and uh had done things like nato expansion and, and other very questionable foreign policy initiatives uh, obama decided you know this was the guy that i'm going to task to basically send uh around the world to, to do my foreign policy. Biden was very involved in Iraq, for instance, um, and, and uh, Afghanistan and a whole host of other countries. Ukraine was one of them. Um, the uh, Biden's 
involvement in Ukraine, I think, really, really shows uh, why he was such uh, an, an unfit candidate to be president. Um, because the fact that his son ended up on the board there, that, that was basically openly meant to curry favor with the uh with the the, the washington administration um by by ukraine's oligarchs essentially that that was what the idea was um and you know biden because he's had this decades worth of just very loose um conduct around the enrichment of maybe not himself but his family uh he was just a, a sitting duck for that and that caused all sorts of problems um at the same time, Biden was basically as the the uh, U.S. representative, as sort of the the you know basically the the kind of um, colonial official, essentially in charge of kind of managing Ukraine. He was uh, pressing the Ukrainian post Maidan president Poroshenko. He was pressing him to impose uh, all these IMF reforms that were horrific for Ukrainians. Um, you know, in, including taking off gas subsidies uh, that that. Ukrainians needed to, to, to you know keep their their homes heated uh, on, a, on a fairly affordable level as a very poor country remember um, Biden was the one pushing him to do that to do other neoliberal reforms that there were there were these uh, tapes that were uh, released by by a politician um, uh, back in I think it was 2020 um, that showed Biden doing this it, of course it was completely ignored by the media because um, you know uh, th- there was an election that had to be won and so Nothing negative about Biden could be reported at the time, um, but you know that was his role. And and I also, by the way, it, this question of whether Biden um, fired the the prosecutor, uh, a general who who was looking into the company that the Biden's son was on, um, you know, whether he did it to protect his son or not, I don't know whether he did or not, but it is very clear that that Biden did push to get this guy removed and that unlike what everyone reported it is absolutely not true that the investigation into Burisma the company that that Hunter Biden was on the board was dormant that that has just been asserted and stated flatly in in uh, western coverage of this and it's completely wrong I mean it was only a few weeks uh, uh, before uh, uh, Shokin was was removed the prosecutor general was removed at Biden's behest that uh, there was actually a, a, a bunch of arrests made, uh, or uh, an arrest or raid. Like, I can't remember now, but but uh, basically, a very significant action was done in the course of this investigation. So, how could it have been dormant only a few weeks earlier when he's removed? Uh, secondly, one of these phone calls with with uh, Poroshenko and Biden that was recorded literally opens <laughs> with Poroshenko saying. Uh, okay, Mr. Vice President, I've gotten rid of Shokin, uh, even though we had no evidence that he did anything wrong. Uh, we have done as you requested, and he's gone. Um, uh, which <laughs> completely obliterates the narrative that was being uh, uh, pushed in the Western media. But then also the other question is, you know, that I wondered when I when I saw this was, why was this phone call being recorded? And mm. what a strange thing to to uh, to to mention at the start of a call to say we've gotten rid of this guy even though we have no evidence that he did anything wrong <laughs> and then and i and, you know i i this is completely speculation so take it as speculation but when i heard that i thought to myself that has biden basically opened himself up to uh potential blackmail was this what was going on that the, right. this protocol was being recorded huh. so that it could be used uh, against him later uh, i don't know but i mean huh. 
you know, it's I think it's a it's a fair question to ask. Of course, no one no one wants to ask that question. Um, but, no one wa- no one wants to acknowledge the facts you've just laid out. I mean, that's incredible. I didn't know that, and uh, it's just so funny that so many things that Trump was accused of are thing you know like uh, conspiring with a foreign power, uh, trading on um, corruption, um, potentially being vulnerable to blackmail. Uh, are things that you could, you know, possibly accuse Biden of based on just, just based on Ukraine alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it, it, and it's it's interesting that for all the talk of, of Russian meddling in, in U.S. politics and, and everything, which obviously, you know, happens as as it happens that the U.S. meddles in Russian politics, there's a constant back and forth between these two governments. But no one ever mentions the fact that that Ukraine has such a uh, active involvement in trying to shape U.S. politics. The the fact that the Ukrainian government was feeding the Clinton campaign uh, negative information about Trump as a way to curry favor with what they thought was going to be the next administration, that is completely just that's been memory hold. Or again, reporters have just started saying, "Well, that's just not true. That never happened," even though it was reported by Politico the Financial Times and others at the time. Uh, And remember, this is basically what Ukraine was doing with the Clinton campaign is exactly the same thing that that uh, Trump was purported to have done with Russia that was meant to be so outrageous that that he sort of took information from a a foreign government that was trying to, to curry favor with him. So there's no standards on this whatsoever at all um and and i would just uh i would add to that there was a, a recent story at the intercept and responsible statecraft that talked about the level of lobbying going on from the ukrainian government right now and and they pointed out that that basically if you look at the amount of uh uh contacts that the ukrainian government has done in 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 you know in, in recent months um as this aggression with, with, with Russia has been building up. Uh, I think it's something like five times the level of what the Saudis do, which is wow. pretty pretty crazy because the Saudis are one of the most uh, in, involved meddlers in U.S. politics, as I think uh, many people know. So, yeah. And it's even more scandalous because the Saudis at least can, you can argue that they can afford it because they're so well, in Ukraine, such a poor country. Mm. And yet all this money is being spent on on lobbying, I, I presume it's not spent on lobbying in the interests of the majority of the population of Ukraine, but in the interests of the of the oligarchs that mm. control it. And you know what you mentioned about the prosecutor and just how widely accepted the narrative is about how, for example, like what you talked you talked about the this narrative that the case against Burisma was dormant, so firing this prosecutor wouldn't have made a difference to that, and that just being a blatant lie. It raises the obvious question: Well, if they're lying about that, then what else are they lying about? And it's incredible that on such a consequential story, there's still such a prevailing lack of interest in looking at it. And there's still so many mysteries as to what was really going on. And I, I really hope we find out more. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, the, the last thing I would add to that is, is I think what this should teach people is if, if it's about Ukraine, be extremely careful when you read uh, Western coverage, particularly uh, – British and, and, and American establishment kind of, kind of media coverage of it because it's so heavily politicized. Uh, Ukraine is such a such a domestic political football within the United States that you really cannot trust fully what what's going on. It doesn't doesn't mean that everything is false, but you have to be extremely careful. You should you should try and read 
you know, uh, the, the writing of analysts that are located outside the United States, outside of Britain, um, and, and try and get their read on it. Read the news, you know, beyond, beyond uh, English-speaking borders. Let's put it that way. Mm. Here, here. So, Branko, it's been almost an hour. So if, uh, if at any point you have to jump off, just, 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 just feel free. But right. we will take some calls. And I'm going to prioritize people who have not called in before. So, Mateo, I'm going to bring you in next. When you come in, you just hit the microphone button in the bottom right to unmute yourself. And I'm bringing you in right now. Hi, Mateo. Okay, I cannot hear Mateo. Is that something on my end or is that something on Mateo's I end? cannot hear Mateo either. Okay. So, Mateo, I'm going to bump you out and ask you if... Yes, there you go. And, Robert, I'm going to bring you in now. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Hi, Aaron. I am a huge fan. Uh, I consider myself a populist conservative. But I think your principled stance, even though we disagree on a lot of things politically, is inspiring to see a real journalist. So it's an honor to talk to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, by the way, I have a Twitch show. It's uh, Normal America with Robert Knorr. I'd love to talk to you sometime. But I had two quick points I wanted to make. First, Branko, thank you very much for saying something I haven't heard anyone but myself say, which is people forget this Ukrainian story where we had people from the Hillary administration that was getting basically dirt on Trump. Uh, you had this whole thing with like the black book that they had on, you know, the certain people that they were going after in the Ukraine and stuff like that. And you were talking about the investigation into Burisma and Zolchevsky. Remember, two weeks before Shokin was fired, Zolchevsky actually had a hold placed on all of his property and his financial accounts. And yet then Shokin is basically brought in by Poroshenko's office and told he was fired. And so just real quick, I thought it was amazing that we spent four years talking about potential blackmail opportunities with Donald Trump. Do you think that it's literally possible that Biden's afraid if we don't do everything that Ukraine wants, that they could basically out the goods on what I was doing when I was vice president? I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to say that, that we have any sort of definitive proof. I, I, I think it, it's possible. I, I don't know. At the moment, Mostly what's happening seems to be driven by, by Biden. I mean, the Ukrainian government is kind of, if anything, kind of uh, annoyed at the stance Biden's taking, that he's kind of inflaming this panic that, you know, even just yesterday or today, the Ukrainian president was saying, OK, let's just just hold on here. We don't know if a Russian invasion is imminent. If, if there's intelligence, we would love to see it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, it's, it's certainly a possibility if your son is, you know, uh, a board member on this, on this, uh, a very corrupt company, of course, you're opening yourself up to, to all manner of things, whether it happened or not, it's, it's profoundly irresponsible behavior. And it's, yep. it's, it's completely the, uh, opposite of kind of what people, what Biden was sold to the public as, right? Because the, the thing was, because people weren't Trump out, they had to turn Biden into this kind of antithesis of Trump, which he he really wasn't. Uh, you know, there's in terms of when you talk about uh, corruption or hostility to civil liberties, or you know, you can go down the list. Trump and Biden had a lot of 
pretty similar qualities. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, can I just say something that I just find it so hilarious that, and again, this is all speculation, so we have no idea if they if these Ukrainians do actually have blackmail leverage over Biden and whether they're trying to blackmail him or not. But it is so funny that for all the talk for f- more than four years of Putin having a P-tape and all this other form of compromise on Trump, that there is at least a much more plausible case to make that, that, the, that Ukraine has blackmail leverage over Biden. That doesn't mean that it's necessarily true, but there's a much more plausible case to make. Well, I, ju- I just find deliciously hilarious. Well, and also rem- remember that, okay, so the scandal, that the, the Ukraine gate scandal was about the fact that the Trump was leaning on the Ukrainian president, kind of basically threatening to withhold aid in order to get him to uh, uh, do an investigation of, of Burisma and Biden's role. Um, okay. But that is exactly the same thing that Biden did. Uh, he, he, he threatened to withhold aid from Ukraine unless they got rid of the prosecutor general. Um, now, you can say that, that, that one of these things is, is, uh, is, is bad or, or you know, uh, beyond the pale or whatever, but then you have to say the other one is as well. And I think the only distinction between them is whether you think that one investigation was more – or one, one demand – was more justified than, than the other, um, you know, and and I, I don't think that that Biden's uh, removal of, of, of Shokin for whatever reason he wanted it, uh, it was uh, justified. Um, I, I don't know about the, the Trump thing either, because that could have been, of course, just an attempt to sort of drum up something fake. But as we've also pointed out, as I, as I point out today, um, there were there are legitimate questions about what exactly was going on with with Hunter and Parisma, so. This just kind of gives you a sense of how upside down and all over the place the the the, the media coverage and the and the discourse on this whole Ukraine stuff is in, in the United States and in the West generally. Yeah, and I'll just just real quick, I'd say on that, like I always found it hilarious that this made me an extremist for having this position. If someone in our executive branch threatens to withhold billions of taxpayer dollars to another country for something that could benefit a family member. There should be an investigation. I don't care if your name's Bush or Trump or Biden or Obama. It blew my mind that Biden admitted, like Trump got impeached for an alleged quid pro quo. Biden admitted to the quid pro quo. (laughs) And everyone just said, well, we know Biden. He's sort of this doddering, polite man. He wouldn't have done that for personal reasons. It doesn't matter if you like the person. We can't have a system where those sorts of quid pro quos are occurring because, well, I just trust this guy. And to me, it goes in line with a greater thing. They keep going after Trump for things that they themselves have admitted they did. So they impeached Trump in the Ukraine over the fact that allegedly he had a quid pro quo looking into Biden's quid pro quo. They investigated Trump for Russia collusion because they said Trump may have got dirt on Hillary from Russians. So how did they seek to prove that? By Hillary's camp meeting with a Russian, Igor Dachenko, and getting dirt on Trump. So everything's constantly, well, we do something, and then when another side supposedly does that, we think that that's pro-Russian and it needs investigation. So, Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, the, the other thing I'd say real quick, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, for both of you, I had this question. I don't know. I'm not a foreign policy expert. It could be entirely true that the story we're being told about Putin being an aggressor, and being in the wrong here, it could be true. I have serious reservations. 
But let's say it's true. My question is this. Given that the people that will be responsible for delivering that message and intervening have lied to us almost every time they've opened their mouth and led us into disastrous war after disastrous war. We can go back to Iraq, to Libya, to Iran, over and over, our support in Yemen for what's going on there. And then even if you look at the Biden administration, let's not forget, it took him two weeks in office. We're talking about national sovereignty. He bombed Syria two weeks in office because he alleged that Iranian militants were in, in Syria. What kind of violation of sovereignty is that? So given that even if you think, if I'm talking to my friends that say, well, Russia's the aggressor here, how can I explain to them that even if that's the case, we have to err on the default of we can't cheer for any more bloodshed and things like this because fool me once, shame on you, but fool me 40 times. At what point do we say, no, we're <laughs> sorry, we don't trust you? <laughs> Well, uh, just sh should I go first? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, uh, yeah I, I think with anything that comes out of the U.S. intelligence uh, community, as, as they like to be known, uh, I think, especially if you're a journalist, you've got to be extremely cautious. It's not to say that everything that comes out of it is fake. But the, the thing is, it's, it's without actual evidence or proof uh, being put forward publicly, it's, it's really... Uh, reckless and irresponsible just take their word for it and to say okay well if they say it that's true because how many things have happened where where government officials anonymous government officials or intelligence officials or whoever else comes out and says something always in the direction of of uh basically extending or escalating conflict and it turns out not to be true the iraq war of course being the the, the operative example but even just in the last few years the russian bounty story that that was repeated constantly you know i was i Watch MSNBC, and and months after, um, even even you know the the, the U.S. commander of, of forces in Afghanistan, U.S. forces in Afghanistan, said we don't have any evidence this is true. Uh, they were still repeating it there, uh, uh, and and elsewhere. Uh, well, think about the Havana syndrome story, which uh, it, it looks increasingly dubious. Uh, even the the U.S. government has now basically shifted on that. Uh, so yeah, we need to be extremely careful with this stuff. It doesn't mean that in this case they're going to be wrong. The, the irony is that by, by saying this constantly for the past, what, two, three months, uh, and at the same time basically refusing to take seriously uh, Moscow's uh, uh, you know, positions, basically asking for, for certain changes to NATO policy and, and refusing to kind of negotiate around those, uh, they could end up being right <laughs> because – they just keep saying it every single week, and if if Putin gets to the point where he decides, well, negotiations are going nowhere. My only option here is to, you know, to invade and and do whatever, maybe carve out a, a piece of Ukraine as a buffer zone, or you know, do a regime change. I don't know what. Uh, then they'll they'll of course point to that and they'll say, ah, so you see, we were we were right. Um, you know, in the sense that I could say that you know, there's nuclear war with China that's going on. I could say that for the next five years, and if one starts, I would be I would be correct. Um, yeah, so let's just be extremely cautious. Um, you know, on the point about trusting government claims or not, I mean, for me to say anything would be would be redundant. I mean, if you know my work, you know that that's what I cover is, you know, challenging U.S. intelligence community claims when it comes to Russiagate or Syria. But to me, there was an amazing line in the New York Times um, that I wanted to quote for you because it's all about how the Times, it, it, the, the article is called U.S. battles Putin by disclosing his next possible moves. And it's all about how 
the U.S. has been on the offensive by disclosing intelligence uh, that reveals Putin's master plan in Ukraine. But they have this line at the buried in the bottom, as they always do. Um, they say this, quote, For all the disclosures, the Biden administration has provided no evidence of the disinformation plots they say they have uncovered. Which I just thought was amazing because the term disclosure means that something is actually disclosed. And for something to be disclosed, you have to have some minimal amount of evidence. And if you're not providing evidence with your disclosures, then it's not a disclosure. It's propaganda. <laughs> and it, it's just amazing that, you know, of course, Times journalists are, you know, can't see the irony here. And they also, it's so funny. It's amazing. The article is supposedly about combating Russian disinformation. And they have this line. Uh, in effect, the administration is warning the world of an urgent threat not to make the case for a war, but to try to prevent one. And I read that line. I was like, wait, I've heard that before. That was literally said by Jake Sullivan yesterday. So they're just really now repeating Jake Sullivan's talking points as fact. And amazingly, they even acknowledge that in the article because like four paragraphs down, they talk about how Jake Sullivan was trying to basically convince the media that this is not the Iraq war. And they quote Jake Sullivan saying, in Iraq, intelligence was used and deployed from this very podium to start a war. We are trying to stop a war, Sullivan said. So in an article purportedly about combating Russian state propaganda, here they are acknowledging that they are passing off U.S. state propaganda as fact. And just the irony is it's just amazing. And listen, speaking of irony, Robert, to your point about Democrats accusing Trump and the Republicans of things they're guilty of. Did you ever hear what Hakeem Jeffries said during the impeachment trial of Trump over Ukraine when he was asked whether under the Democrats' impeachment standard, the Clinton campaign's paying for the Steele dossier, whether that, that would count as foreign interference? Did you hear what Hakeem Jeffries said in response to that? I do not remember. Okay, I'm going to play it for you. I have the soundbite, and hopefully you guys can hear it. And if you can't, I'll just, I'll just repeat it for you. But here, it's only 15 seconds. Here it is. research was obtained it was opposition research that was purchased could you hear that (laughs) yeah (laughs) to the extent that uh opposition research was obtained it was because it was purchased so you got that so uh because the clinton campaign paid for it then it's fine it's unimpeachable (laughs) so foreign dirt is okay (laughs) if there's a financial transaction involved that of course is hidden from the public and it took uh, House uh, House Intelligence uh, Committee subpoenas under Devin Nunes to force the Clinton campaign to admit that they were purchasing it. But anyway, I just found that just so well, hilarious. I mean, it's one of my favorite that, lines. The funny thing that makes it uh, less trustworthy, I feel like, because if you if if someone has a financial incentive to produce, you know, garbage, then yes, uh, I mean that's <laughs> no, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily always going to produce garbage, but but that's definitely a possibility. We can confirm that the Steele dossier. Produce garbage. That is <laughs> that is confirmed. That, that is not that yeah, is not controversial. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was just going to say, just to go along with your point, real quick. If anyone hasn't seen it, the Ned Price uh, debacle the other day. I'm sure you both know what I'm talking about. Where mm. an intrepid reporter finally had the nerve to ask someone from the State Department, like, "Where sure. is your evidence?" That, because remember, this sounded like you were listening to an Alex Jones call-in. You know, Ned Price is up there like, you know, there's going to be a false flag attack and, you know, 
Russia's going to use this false flag. And so this reporter's like, where's your evidence? Now, Ned Price could have said, well, it's classified. We can't show it to you, which is bad enough. But instead, he said, I just gave it to you. And the reporter's like, no, you made a claim. That's not evidence. And he's like, well, we declassified the evidence. And the reporter's like, well, great. Where can I go to see that? And he's like, I just gave it to you. And the thing that if you watch that, that struck me the most was the upright contempt. And like Ned Price was like, how dare you? How dare a journalist <laughs> get in this room? And and the, you, it's palpable. You can see it on Jen Psaki's face, too. And it just, it really goes to show one of the things I've said, which is why I've followed you for a couple of years now, Aaron, is when you listen to the White House press corps or, you know, the press correspondents and they start talking about the importance of a free press, you know, we hold truth to power. All of that stuff's true. It's very important to have a free press. We just don't have one. We have propagandists. And now all of a sudden, when one or two people in the press ask the question, the administration can't believe it. They're just like, wait, what? How how dare you? And how does that end? How's it end? Ned Price basically says, well, I'm ashamed to hear you just pushing Putin's talking points. <laughs> finding I mean, solace. Real- finding <laughs> solace in Russian propaganda. That's what yeah. you're finding solace. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, you know, my favorite part was... Not even Ned Price. It was the response of all these other, you know, uh, establishment journalists pretending as if they, you know, have Matt Lee's back and and are on his side. And and when really they had to they had to claim that they were on his side because he was making them all look like stenographers <laughs> because that's what they do. But there was this moment of like a couple of days of solidarity with Matt Lee for actually doing his job, and a bunch of people who don't do their jobs had to pretend as if they were on his side, which I just, I thought was hilarious. The, the, the thing that it brought to mind to me was, I don't know if you remember this, but before the election, the Hunter Biden laptop story breaks, which sure. in itself is one of the most seminal moments where we had the mainstream media work with social media to censor a story two days before an election. But there was, uh, Joe Biden's getting ice cream somewhere in the press polls there. And someone from the press poll says, do you have any comments on the laptop story? And you could hear every member of the press go, Oh, and then yeah, someone's like, yeah. Mr. Biden, what flavor of ice cream is that? Yeah. Like, that sums it up. Like, the, the other members of the press were like, who is this person to ask a real question? We're here to find the important details. What flavor of ice cream is that, Mr. President? I mean, it's just, it, it's so sad to me because, you know, you can't blame regular people like me. I'm not an expert. So I'm, I don't know. I've never been to Ukraine. I don't know much about Russia. And so I try to, like, make an informed decision on what, I think is a situation that the U.S. should be involved in. And instead, I got these propagandists that it doesn't take a genius to listen to them for three minutes and be like, you're just repeating the same (laughs) intel agency garbage. And then as soon as you look and you're like, oh, well, it turns out that half the former intel agency peoples now have cushy jobs on CNN and MSNBC. No wonder the media we're getting is just, you know, pushing their narrative. Well, you know, the, the, the problem for them, the dilemma for, I think, a lot of the mainstream press was that they they wanted Trump out. Um, a B, they uh, had this kind of shell shock from 2016, where they had convinced themselves that the reason Trump had won was because they had basically done their jobs and, and reported on unflattering information about Hillary Clinton that that was leaked. Uh, and then C, the 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 trouble was that when the race came down to just Biden and Sanders, uh, the basically the entire media and political establishment did not want Sanders. Uh, and so they were sort of forced to push hard for Biden, who they were never enthusiastic for. And then they saddled themselves with this very flawed candidate who had 
I mean, uh, I was actually kind of surprised during the campaign that Trump uh, didn't uh, hit Biden on a whole variety of things. I mean, you know, Biden's career is just littered with 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 big, you know, bullseyes for any <laughs> any kind of uh, political opponent. Um, but yeah, what what you know, the, the result of that was that whenever these stories flared up during the campaign that were very inconvenient for Biden. Uh, the choice was either to, to report on them, which would be very unflattering and damaging for Biden, uh, and possibly let Trump win, or I guess what they decided to do was was to just pretend that it didn't exist and it wasn't worth uh, reporting on at all. Um, of course, NPR famously uh, put out that, that bulletin or that statement saying, we're just flat out not going to deal with this story. It's completely fake. And of course, now we know that that's not true, that the, the, the laptop uh, contents were very much... Uh, genuine and legitimate, um, but now it doesn't matter. The election's gone, so we can admit that. So yeah, that was the problem. They they basically had snookered themselves. They they gone themselves into this position where they really the only thing they could do was just to, to ignore that story. So Robert, thank you. We have a lot more callers that I want to get to. So thank you for for calling in. Thanks. I'd love you having me on the show sometimes. Thank you both of you. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, Thanks. Get, Thanks. Send, send me an email. I will. Will do. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Um, All right. I, I could probably stay for one more call. And okay. Then, uh, and then I'll head off. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, Mateo, I'm going to bring you back in. And remember to unmute yourself by hitting the icon in the bottom right. Am I working? Do you got yes, me? Yes, you you're working. Yes. Hey. Hey, Aaron. I've followed your work for a long time. I'm a big fan of you and, and your dad, too. Your dad's done a lot of great work that's going to be really relevant, I think, in the near future. And uh He'll kind of become more famous as people think about uh, mental health care and compassion and the role of it and all that stuff. Um, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, <laughs> so so I thought you said something, uh, a bunch of things that are really perceptive. I, I was going to come at you with uh, talking about Canada and Ottawa and Coots and the Michigan stuff. And uh, I can't believe you spent a whole hour without talking about that at all because it's interesting. Uh, but I don't. that's not what I want to talk about. Uh, you said something really interesting, and I want to frame that. So number one, I think you, you made a great point about the welcome gift in Ukraine media uh, being that Zelensky shut down kind of the, what, Kolomitsky opposition block proximate media, right? I don't – I can't keep track of all the different Ukrainian names. That's basically so, it, yeah. right? They're, yeah, they're yeah. basically Kolomitsky opposition block type. Okay, yeah. Yes. Right? Yes, sure. You'd agree with that, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Ukraine's so confusing, as you know better than anyone now, because you've yes. been obviously researching it. Yeah. Uh, but that's more or less, he, more or less, what Zelensky was thinking was, "Hey guys, is a little like fun gesture. I'm gonna like, I'm gonna fuck Paul Manafort's friends. Here you go. Isn't that great? Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now you you get the backstory in terms of all that. Yeah. All right. So at the same time that was happening, that of course pisses off Putin because Putin sees like Ukraine is kind of like his beaten down nasty old whore that he happens to own and that is his property, right? Uh, and so when they do those kind of media games and shout out his voice, it makes him angry, kind of like an angry street pimp that's kind of used to controlling a situation and no longer has like, no longer has his hand in the game, right? Uh-huh. You more or less agree with that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyways, at the same time, they make that welcome gift, which Zelensky does in good faith to the liberal, you know, Vicky Newland establishment trying to make friends. Uh, that pisses off Putin. At the same time that happens, at the same time that happens in the timeline, Putin eyes the whole kind of QR code rebellion that was kind of happening uh, in Russia like two months ago, right? And Over, over, over vaccines. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and uh-huh. Putin does something which we in the West, because we, uh, Tucker Carlson plays up his masculinity at 5'8 and aging after all that plastic surgery. Uh, the masculinity of Putin is a very important psychological trope in, in geopolitics. <laughs> but uh, big man Putin, who's afraid of nothing, backed down to his own anti-vax crowd, right? I mean, that uh, happened. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's Two right. months ago. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't right. follow that, afraid, but sure. Yeah. He was afraid. Putin was afraid of what happens when the kind of disinfo, paranoid mindset that he spent, you know, 15 years, 20 years cultivating brilliantly, he's afraid of what he's created. And he knows that the anti-vax thing is a trigger point for, for those people, right? You sure, I mean, that? yeah, I, I think in general, uh, also, I think Putin is just in a less secure domestic position. Uh, right, you know, well, which, I mean, uh, the, 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 thing about, the thing about Putin backing down on the QR code thing is, is particularly important because it coincides with an unfortunate realization that in a climate where Russia's population is flat or declining, I mean, uh, dramatically much more so that's true in Ukraine right now as well. But what what we don't necessarily see in the West is that Russian fertility fell off a cliff in response to Maidan in 2014. If you look at the numbers, so the whole the whole thing is what Putin really lost when the nationalists, when Azov and uh, Pinchuk kind of like played the game better and kind of like spooked Yanukovych out of town. When that happened, they really kind of doomed two nations. They kind of cursed Ukraine to have a post-democratic kind of government in a way that seemed less legitimate to the Russia to the Russophone minority, right? Mm. And at the same time, they also kind of, uh, I mean, if you look at the Russian birth numbers and you look at the way the ruble just fell off a cliff, I mean, really, that's it. People don't want to have babies in an economically insecure environment. And uh, when, when Putin took Crimea, which most Russians support, of course, he devalued the ruble badly and made, uh, made middle-class life much, much harder, right? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's all really from 2014 when you just look at the ruble going from like 40 to 70, right? Hmm. Hmm. So anyways, he's confronting this QR code rebellion. He backs down. He's confronting the fact that the real excess, de- excess deaths from Russia, which are worse than ever as of right now, because they're getting the horrible Midwest Great Lakes kind of Delta on the cron combo right now. He's facing the fact that the, mil- the million excess deaths of COVID are from a flat population. So there's really like a negative million number for everyone to look at if they want to go to Google and look at like an honest, you know, map of just how incredibly fast Egypt and Nigeria are growing and just how fast like Eastern Europe is still shrinking. It's right there. So so I think those two things in the backstory, you know, explain a lot of Putin's mindset and a lot of his behavior in that uh, he feels comfortable and uh, with being kind of the hero that returned ethnic ethnic russian uh crimea and you know everybody in crimea more or less is ethnic russian and speaks russian there are no ukrainian ukrainians there there are totters like that skater girl that are repressed because putin is a a racist and a bigot and likes to repress his minorities almost as much as stalin did uh but aside from that fact uh you know those two things put pressure on him uh in terms of kind of reclaiming the glory of like catherine taking catherine's city of odessa back having the optics of that. But he only right. wants that and craves that because uh, his legacy since 2014, uh, besides uh, growing authoritarianism in his sphere uh, and you know declining standard of living in places like Belarus that are really his responsibility at this point, is that Russian demographic decline and the decline of Russian soft power. Russia shouldn't need to bully Kiev. 
Kiev should naturally be sending their best and brightest to Moscow in kind of a soft power imperial relationship. That's what it was really like under Kazakhstan. Right, well, that's what, Got that's what it. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Anyways, anyways, but here's the line. Yeah. Here's the line I thought was really good, Aaron. That 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 I thought was very very perceptive that you said. You said drawing them into a war against a far right insurgency, and that's a really really good line because that's January sixth. That's Ottawa this week. That's made on eight years ago, and that's obviously what Putin would be afraid of if he tried to occupy too much of, of, of Ukraine. And that's really the way all of our intelligence services try to fuck each other. We all try to, like, create right-wing nuts and weaponize them. And that's kind of like what's happening right now in Michigan, uh, the Michigan-Canada border, is that got out of control. And, you know, the thing is you play along with characters, you know, like Alexander Ali, and these things happen. You know, people take the script too seriously, and the right-wing nuts that are weaponized start to do real damage. You know, all right. that's kind of what's happening all over the place, Let both me, in Ottawa, yeah. yeah, and both both with Made on eighty. We got him, Matteo. All right, thank you, thank you. I, I would I would just add to to that that because I didn't mention this while we were talking, uh, but this is a really really important point. This is this is kind of for me the the fundamental thing here. Uh, we know what happens when the U.S. funds uh, insurgencies or kind of trains and, and equips extremists overseas when it thinks that it'll be convenient against, uh, you know, it's sort of, sort of geopolitical to and fro. Well, I mean, you know, uh, you, you, you got to be really honest Wait, about, wait, Mateo, it, wait, let, let Franco finish. finish. Yeah. And it ends up blowing up in, in, in Washington's face. And not, not really even Washington's face. It, it hurts the American public. We saw this in Afghanistan in the 80s. We saw this with the, uh, the, the, the Cuban right-wingers uh, you know, through the 50s and the 60s. Um, and there's a real risk that, that flooding Ukraine now with weapons and, and giving military training to, to Ukrainians, some, you know, most of which are, are you know, totally normal Ukrainian people in the armed forces, but a significant contingent of which are fired extremists, will end up down the line um, you know, hurting, hurting the American public because we've already seen that, that Ukraine – is kind of a, a mecca for for the global far right for far right extremists in the United States and but other. But you're talking Western about countries. Canadians, the global far right let's, for Ukraine. Let's, or a bunch let's of let Branko finish, finish his point. I'm not. I'm not sure what you know. I'm, uh, the Canadians. I'm not uh, talking about right now. I'm talking. Well, about bring it back to the real world. Canadian, in the I'm real talk- world, the far right are Canadian that that supply money well, to hold on, the Ukraine hold on. far right. Well, there, there are there are members of the far right in the United States that have uh, gone to Ukraine and come. And back you know what they the are? States. The equivalent the equivalent of Ukrainian far right are Zionist Americans. And here's the thing about Murdoch media: it's so busy attacking the liberals that it doesn't notice the fact that when the U.S. goes in the war path against Iran or in Syria against Shia targets, it's always a Mossad operation. I'm, I'm not really sure. All right. Yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. No, no, sorry. Oh, I don't really see right. what that yeah. has to do with my, my broader point, which is that it's dangerous yeah. to fund a extremist insurgency and that it could end up blowing up not just in the American public space, but the Canadian public. Uh, the European public, uh, more generally, uh, you know, that that's the fundamental point. And that, I wish that that was a bigger part of this conversation that, that, that's happening in the United States. Um, I would and, also- and, I, and I just want to say quickly that I'm not a Mossad fan, but I don't think everything is a Mossad operation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think also, I don't know if Mateo's still there, but, you know, I think I would take a little bit of an issue with, I, I don't think that this is entirely driven by Putin's domestic concerns. I mean, I, I think, of course, he's going to get, he thinks he's going to get some sort of bump from this. Of course, it's convenient for him, given some of those domestic problems he's having. But I also think if, if the idea here was to actually do an invasion, um, why would he have done this you know, slow, months-long, highly telegraphed thing that, that mm-hmm. basically just allows every single player to, to get in position to, to, to <laughs> fight back? Yes. Uh, 
if anything, you know, when you, when he did it with Crimea, it was very quick and and and, and very sudden and, and completely unexpected. Uh, and I don't if if his goal here was to invade and not to basically force the West to the negotiating table, um, I think it would have been similar to that. It wouldn't have been this kind of this three month long tease that that we're getting. I totally agree. And uh, Branko, I know you have to go, so we can. Uh we can leave it there with you and I'll take more callers. So Branko, where can people follow your work? Uh, Jacqueline magazine. I'm a staff writer there. Uh, it's J A C O B I N mag.com. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter as well. I have the, the same handle as I do for calling. It's, uh, it's, uh, at B M A R C H E T I C H. Uh, and, uh, occasionally I also write for in these times, which is a, a great Chicago based magazine that people should check out. And your book is called Yesterday's Man, The Case Against Joe Biden, available everywhere. Branko Marchetich, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a really great conversation. All right. Talk soon. See ya. All right. Bernard, I am bringing you in now. And remember to unmute yourself when you come in by hitting the microphone icon in the bottom right. G'day, Aaron. How are you? Um, How you doing? Good, mate. Um, I'm actually calling from Australia, and um, I've uh, kind of been—I mean, once I following—but ever since MH17 um, got shot down in 2014, I've—you know—before that, I, I wasn't—you know—even looking at. Didn't even. I, I kind of turned off whenever Ukraine was mentioned. And just to explain for people what MH14 uh, is, or, or 17. Is, 17. That's- Seventeen. That's the plane that was shot down over uh, the uh, eastern Ukraine, and it's been blamed on Russian-backed rebels. Yeah, yeah, and like ever since then, I mean, I've you know, I'm I just kind of like realized that most of the reporting that was coming out about that and Ukraine was like it was never, it was never. I mean, it was basically there's always a lot of. Um, you know, part truths. That's that's why. Or you know, I just I didn't never thought we were being told the full story about anything. But it, well, the reason why I, I I kind of put that background there is that um, post that, journo's were crawling all over Ukraine, and they you know, and, and it's a relatively easy from from all reports, it's a relatively easy country to get in and get out of. Now at the moment, um, I don't watch a lot of. I traditionally I don't. Well, recently I haven't watched a lot of um, mainstream media. But over the last month, I've deliberately have put myself through it, and um, I'm not sure if I'm just watching the wrong stuff. And you know, we get all the cable channels here in Australia, but there's actually no journos, or you're not actually. So much of the footage that you're seeing is just file footage of you know Ukraine, and I'm not sure if I'm just missing it or whatever, but. Every single time there's a build-up like this, whether it be like even in you know in Syria, even like in Iraq, every single time there's a you know something going on, U.S. you know media companies always have people there because you know that's that's what they want. But what I've been like struck with this time around is that they've had a month to get through a relatively porous border to go to the Ukraine, and yet. There's just like all the footage that I do see that I turn on, whether it be, you know, CNN or NBC, CM, uh, MSNBC or even Fox. It just seems to be like file footage from years ago. Hmm. What, I'm, what I'm getting at is that if there really was something happening, wouldn't you actually see like a pack of, you know, American journos camped out in Kiev? Or wouldn't you actually see people like, you know, actually, you know, interviewing people on the ground? <laughs> I mean, like, 
I, I just, I, I hate even to say it, but like, you've got to go to Russia today to actually mm. see anything con- contemporary. Where they're well, actually <laughs> look, I've seen, I've seen U.S. correspondents on the ground in, in Ukraine. Uh, Richard Engel of NBC oh, okay. and. Uh, People like that. I definitely think, at least now in recent weeks, there's been a, a rush to send people there. Um, I, I don't know about the international news agencies, but certainly for the big U.S. ones, they have sent people at least in recent weeks. Okay. Well, I, well, you've, 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 okay. Okay. Well, that, okay. We've so, answered the question. So, so, so what I'm saying is, rest assured, don't worry. Uh, Richard Engel is putting on his makeup from the <laughs> front line in in Ukraine to do two minute camera hits to tell. Everyone that a Russian invasion is imminent. Don't do not worry. He's he's there on the ground. <laughs> okay, so so you so there is there is that that always happens. Like you always see like if there is a, you, anything going on, you always do see it preceded by you know the U.S. corporate media roll through. So oh, sure, okay. yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, well you know you've answered my question. So you so you say well is this just like one or two or like the ideas? Do you, do you reckon I mean, we I, get I don't know. Again, I, I don't know about the BBC or or the other ones, but definitely um, the major corporate U.S. outlets have people there for sure. And if you read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, they have people going around to the Ukrainian uh, controlled parts of, of Ukraine. Not the not so much from the uh, uh, Russian backed rebel parts of Ukraine because you can't really pay attention to what those people want if you're the U.S. establishment media because they don't matter. But you know there are certainly reporters going to the various towns that are in the conflict zone okay well thanks well thanks you know great to chat um i love your work with uh, you and jimmy as well i love it when you were on jimmy door show it's uh i always tune in for that as well so um well, thank thanks you. for all your fan thanks for all your fantastic work i appreciate that thanks Bernard. okay bye. bye matt you are coming in next and then we got to wrap it up pretty soon but let me just announce that i'll be doing another call in tomorrow so if I don't get your calls today, uh, we will take you tomorrow because I'll be actually doing a call in tomorrow with Michael Tracy. Uh, tomorrow, actually at the same time, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, right here on Colin. So if you didn't get to speak today, you can always come back tomorrow if you are free then. All right, Matt, you are next. And remember to unmute yourself by hitting the microphone button in the bottom right. Hi, oh, sorry, that's my daughter. Hi, Aaron. Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan. Uh, I host a show called In the Context of Empire. I've talked to your friend Ben Norton and Scott Horton on it. I would love to have you on sometime, but that's uh, besides the point for now. I first wanted to congratulate you on that amazing article you wrote this morning about the media coverage of Ukraine. And I, I thought it was really funny. You point you, At the end of the article, you point out this CNN article that is almost – too credulous where they're, they're pointing to the fact that the Biden administration is on a releasing information campaign to deter uh, an invasion. And it's like this perfect situation where the Biden administration can claim there's an invasion that's about to happen and then cl- then claim that they're putting on information that will in turn deter the invasion. And when that invasion inevitably doesn't happen, they'll take credit for it not happening. Yes, of course. Very, um, very, uh, very amazingly. A couple of hours after I published that article, the New York Times published an article that is pretty much the exact same article as the CNN one, but it's even funnier uh, because um, – and I talked about it a bit earlier on this call. But anyway, it's the exact same thing as a CNN article, but it's just kind of the same thing where it's like the Biden administration is confronting Russia by releasing claims that, of course, have no evidence. 
and they don't put two and two together that like they're parroting exactly what they claim to be combating in Russia, which is state propaganda. It's um, their, their, their failure to see the irony just never ceases to amaze. And my favorite part of that CNN, CNN article is um, what like they interview some Western uh, intelligence official. And what does he call it? Like the campaign, a um, strategic communications campaign, right. right? Which is just like another word for propaganda, but without saying it. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of which, I think the part of the propaganda is to just to constantly deflect from U.S. actions. And, and you know, there's this charge people like us get that we're engaged in, quote unquote, whataboutism. But what they call whataboutism is like a what I would say is a very uh, useful tool to point out that the stated goals, whether it's democracy promotion or promoting human rights, are not the actual goals. And I, but I'll hang up in a second, but I just wanted to, I thought of something rather instructive. Uh, when you look at 2014, you had two armed seizures of government, one in Ukraine and one in Yemen with the Houthis, whether you want to call that an armed seizure of government or a uh, takeover, uh, when they forced Hadi to set, step down. In both cases, you have the reaction of a nearby foreign power getting involved. Russia, quote unquote, invaded Ukraine, whether you want to call the Crimea invasion an invasion or referendum. Russia, to some degree, was involved in Ukraine. But of course, Saudi Arabia immediately in March of 2015 gets involved. It, it involved is an understatement. It starts bombing Yemen, uh, you know, as of I think last week I seen the number of people killed is something like 377,000 where, and you see Washington's reaction to what I would say are two very similar occasions, right? So in the case of Ukraine, the United States uh, backs Ukraine and, and backs these far right separatists. And of course they support the U S supported the coup to begin with. And starting during the Trump administration, they're arming the Ukrainian government. Whereas in the Saudi Arabia, in Saudi Arabia's intervention, in Yemen, they're supporting the outside power that's getting involved, where they're arming Saudi Arabia, refueling their planes, providing them with intelligence and all the other assistance to Saudi Arabia and what amounts to a far bloodier intervention than Russia's, by comparison, minor intervention in Ukraine when they seize Crimea. Um, so I, I guess the bigger question is, what do you think about making those kinds of comparisons? Do you think they're useful? Uh, are there limits to pointing out hypocrisy? Uh, to me, that seems like a, a useful question to ask. Like, are the stated goals, like Bronco was talking about before, like, are, are the stated goals of democracy promotion and worth questioning? And because it points out that there's something else at play here. Obviously, the obviously human rights and democracy promotion are just not values that the United States has. They're they're marketing strategies. They're they're essentially tools that are useful to the extent that they can demonize a foreign enemy. So I'll, I'll let you respond to that, Aaron, if that you think that comparison is worthwhile to make. Yeah, I mean, the only caveat is that no situation is perfectly analogous, so you always have to be mindful of whatever differences there are. But yeah, um, the, you know, Putin annexing Crimea is deemed to be this just massive crime that cannot be countenanced, and then you know, you look at the actual history, you know, the fact that Crimea used to belong to the Soviet Union, the fact that basically any Russian leader, whether it's Putin or Navalny, if he ever were the president, would have done the exact same thing because no Russian leader could tolerate having NATO control its uh, its most important naval base. I mean, of course, you have to uh, make 
comparisons and, and confront the underlying assumptions. I mean, without that, you can't really get to the truth because we're, we're bombarded with so much propaganda. So obviously I, I'm very sympathetic to everything that you just laid out. Uh, Aaron, can I say one more thing uh, before yeah. you, uh, it just reminded me of, I, I'm sure you've seen and read well, and seen the documentary manufacturing consent. Of course. Uh, and in the documentary, Chomsky points out, as he does in the book, that you have this really parallel situations going on in the 1970s where there are simultaneously two genocides being committed at almost the exact same region of the planet, one in Cambodia yeah. and then one in East Timor. And, of course, he lays out, you know, it's early 90s, so it's like kind of cheesy, but they lay out the amount of inches of New York Times space that's devoted to one incident versus the other. And it's something like... 1,100 inches of, of newspaper coverage is given to the Cambodian situation and something like, I don't know, 70 inches are given to the East Timor situation. And, uh, and then Chomsky goes on to say, these are not, it's not just media criticism here. This is not just poor journalism. By not covering this, they're complicit. They, cause the, if the American people knew more about the genocide in which the United States was deeply involved in perpetrating in East Timor, although you could argue they're complicit in the one in Cambodia as well, but Americans wouldn't tolerate it. So, uh, so I'll just thank you for the great journalism you do exposing the hypocrisy and exposing the crimes that we should be aware, uh, made aware of. Well, honestly, I probably wouldn't be doing it if I hadn't watched Manufacturing Consent and internalized everything that Chomsky said and watched it very many, many times. So I, um, you know, in the same way that it informed your view, it informed mine too. And I, I I appreciate those kind of words. So thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, welcome on my show anytime. Have a, uh, have a great afternoon. Yeah, give me a shout. Thank you. You too. All right. And guys, I'm out of time. We've been going for over an hour and a half, and I have to, I have to run. So we're going to have to pick this up again tomorrow. I apologize to the callers that I did not take today. If you are free tomorrow at 2 o'clock Eastern time, same time, I'll be doing a call-in with Michael Tracy I think we're doing it on his show page, not mine, so watch out for that. But I will tweet out the link whenever it goes up. So thank you, everybody, uh, for tuning in today. I really enjoyed this discussion, and thank you again to Bronco Marcetich. And I will link to as many articles as I can that were discussed today in the show notes below, so you can click on to do more reading. All right, everybody, have a great rest of your day. Talk soon.